0: it's important to start this final episode of the Creation Care Series here on Postmodern Liturgy with a time of confession. I'll tell you why in a minute. Obviously, I believe deeply in this work. I believe Creation Care is a fundamental aspect of life for those who would call themselves people of God. I believe we're headed towards some tragic outcomes if we don't do something to address climate change and other climate issues. And, I even believe as people disengage from consumeristic systems, we will be happier, more fulfilled, and less anxious. It's not easy, but once we put our consumeristic desires to death, we're able to see this whole thing is a win win. Win, 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 win. However, I also think we have a growing issue of not embodying what we believe. Or put a different way, Many times our beliefs do not inform our actions. My confession to you all is this. My beliefs do not always inform my actions. I've made some large changes to move in the direction of a caretaker of the earth, but I still have a ways to go. I know we have an air quality issue and that we urgently need to reduce the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, but there are times when I drive and I don't need to. Last week, my parents were out of town, so they left their truck with me to take care of some projects. I drove it when I needed to, and I also drove it when I didn't need to. In fact, for the 8 years before this, I drove at least 90 miles 5 days a week for work. I confess that this year, a lot of my garden was dormant, and that wasn't an intentional choice based on Sabbath, it was just easier to skip this year. Several years ago, I started a large compost pile in my yard. I confess that in the last six months, I've opted for the trash can much more often than taking a trip out to the pile. I confess that I don't always remove the labels from my recycling, and I don't always wash out the containers. I use a paper towel when a rag would be just fine. When shutting the lights off at night, I confess that there have been times when I realize one is still on, and I just leave it on. I confess that I don't always shut off all my electronics when I'm not using them, and I don't unplug my chargers during the day. I could go on forever, and there are even times when I realize I should should do something to be more green, and I choose not to. I often choose what is easy rather than what is good. I really could go on and on. I'm Anthony Mako. Welcome to Postmodern Liturgy. This podcast is a chance to reflect on the weekly readings in the church calendar the week before they actually occur. So this podcast comes out on Mondays and uses the readings for the following Sunday. Our distinctive is that we try to apply a variety of postmodern lenses lenses to the text, especially offering a space for deconstruction and doubt. I also write and record all the music specifically for this podcast. You can engage in more material at postmodernliturgy.com. You can follow us on social media at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram, and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. And if you're so inclined, you can join our wonderful group of supporters on Patreon at patreon.com slash postmodern liturgy. Right now, we've taken a break from the weekly readings to do a series on creation care. This is the fifth and final episode in that series. If you haven't listened to the first four episodes, you really should stop and go back because we're following a pretty intentional trajectory. After this episode, I'm going to take a publishing week off and then return with the week before the Advent season begins. Now for today's episode. There are three specific reasons I confess these things to you today. The first is, I think it's only responsible for me, as the person who has laid this info on so thick over the last five episodes, to make sure you know... I've invested a ton of thinking, time, and action into this topic, but I'm nowhere near perfect. I'm not even near satisfactory. No one is perfect, but I have realized that this isn't about doing it perfectly. It is, as with most things, about managing the tension. The first step is probably admitting these issues exist. Step two is learning more about it. Step three is learning how to not let guilt keep you from doing anything. And step four is action. I confess to you today because it is helpful to admit your shortcomings. I'm not overcome with guilt. I'm not giving up. I'll just keep getting better. Reason number two that I confess today is because we are all in this together and I wanted to be honest with myself and with you so that, if nothing else, you can be honest with yourself and with your community. Reason number three I confess is to address two of the main reasons I have heard to not get involved in creation care or environmental issues. I often hear some things like this. These Hollywood liberals are out there trying to tell us that climate change exists and want us to make changes to our lives while they drive huge SUVs, own several huge houses, and fly around in their private jets. Well, to this I say, we're talking about two different issues here. Number one, just because their actions don't meet the need, that doesn't mean the need doesn't exist. Number two, their actions have nothing to do with your actions or belief. It's really not that surprising that in one of the capitals of capitalism, people don't always embody their beliefs. A second common argument I hear related to creation care is something like, God will work it all out in the end. Or, if God is reconciling the earth, why does it matter what we do? Or probably the most harmful, in the end, the earth will be destroyed and we'll be in heaven. I think there are a lot of ways that this episode addresses those two critiques. I didn't really develop it for that reason, but I do think it answers both, because today's episode is about two things. Trying to understand how the trajectory of Scripture relates to our care for the earth, and me offering several practical tips for people to practice creation care. Before we do anything else, let's dive into the readings this week. Isaiah 11, verses 1-9 through 9. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of Yahweh shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. His delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh. He shall not judge by what he his eyes see, or and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an, like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the wean child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh, as the waters cover the sea. Isaiah 65, verses 17 through 25. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people, No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it, or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant that lives but a few days, or an old person who does not live out a lifetime. For one who dies at a hundred years will be considered a youth, and one who falls short of a hundred will be considered accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. For they shall not plant, and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, or bear children for calamity. For they shall be offspring blessed by Yahweh, and their descendants as well. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountains, says Yahweh. Just a couple notes before I read this next passage. As I have in the past, I am substituting Yahweh when the Tetragrammaton, or capital L-O-R-D, appears. If you've joined us recently, the reason I do this is because when you are listening to me read these passages, you can't distinguish between capital L-O-R-D and Lord. For more on this choice, you can listen to episode 2 of this podcast. Secondly, I often remove gendered pronouns for God in these readings. This choice is actually based on Paul Tillich's concept of God as ground of being, which among other things reminds us that God does not have human characteristics. God is not male, God is not female. I'm sure I'll write on this at some point, but it was worth bringing up here because even in the first sentence I was in a predicament. I will read, Then Yahweh Became Jealous of God's Land. The text is clear that it is Yahweh's land, but the Tetragrammaton is not written the second time. The capital L-O-R-D Tetragrammaton, God, and possessive pronouns are all used in this passage. So if you're at all curious about where and how they're engaged, you should just read it yourself. Otherwise, enjoy. Joel chapter 2, verses 18-27 through 27. Then Yahweh became jealous for God's land and had pity on God's people. In response to God's people, Yahweh said, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a mockery among the nations. I will remove the northern army far from you and drive it into a parched and desolate land its front into the eastern sea, and its rear into the western sea. Its stench and foul smell will rise up. Surely God has done great things. Do not fear, O soil. Be glad and rejoice, for Yahweh has done great things. Do not fear, you animals of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield, O children of Zion, be glad and rejoice in Yahweh your God. For God has given the early rain for your vindication. God has poured down for you abundant rain, the earlier and the later rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will repay you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent against you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I, Yahweh, am your God, and there is no other. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Revelation 21 verses 1 through 5 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. God will dwell with them. They will be God's peoples, and God, God's self, will be with them. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I'm making all things new. Also God said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. I want to start this reflection with a general observation, because I just invoked three prophets and one Revelation reading. We could talk forever about the similarities and differences between the prophets and Revelation, but there's one thing in particular I think will be very helpful. We must remember, the writings in Isaiah and Joel, in their broader context, are about a specific time period, Israel's exile. So we don't necessarily want to read it like our future. The most we should do is read it like Israel's future at the time. But the funny thing is, the same could be said for Revelation. It's a vision for the future for a specific time, which is our past. I think that's always important to remember when engaging with what has been considered apocalyptic literature. I don't think we would want to use it to draw a map of the future or like we're gambling on a sports game that hasn't taken place yet. In some ways, it's not definitely our future. But I think there is a way to read it that can inform a time we look ahead to. And and that's through learning about the character of God. In fact, seeing similar themes in the Old Testament prophets and in Revelation is a really good thing because that means we can see a trajectory God is on. And here we see that God is moving toward the reconciliation of all creation. Here though, I want to address the barriers to creation care that I mentioned in the introduction. First, God will work it all out in the end. I mean, that's true, right? These passages clearly say that is true. Yes, they do. But there are myriad reasons why this shouldn't be a barrier to a deep engagement with creation care and environmental action. Here's just a couple. Number one, apparently the earth isn't going to be destroyed. If you think I just cherry-picked the right passages to prove my point, please feel free to find the passages that counteract this argument and send it to me. The earth will be made new. But... Not in the get rid of the old one and have a new one appear kind of way. I imagine it is in the you are a new creation kind of way. And, even more, it really doesn't seem like we're going anywhere else besides the new earth. If you can't tell, I'm walking a tightrope trying to avoid falling off into an eschatological discussion for time's sake. For more on that part, you should absolutely read Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. Speaking of Wright, on this subject, I'll leave you with one of my favorite N.T. Wright quotes. Heaven is important, but it's not the end of the world. Number two, even if God will work it all out in the end, it seems to me that generally Christians believe a large part of the Christian life is participating in the work of God in the world. If the original intention was moving chaos to order, having rhythm, healthy systems and balance, and Sabbath, and if scripture suggests that the character of God is moving toward the reconciliation of all creation, or putting everything back into its original state, then I guess the only question left to ask is, what exactly are we waiting for? Number three, it doesn't matter what we do to the earth now, God will work it out in the end. I actually can't think of any other area of one's life where they would be satisfied with that answer. Imagine if someone's five-year-old broke their leg and instead of taking them to the doctor, they say, Don't worry, buddy. God will work it out in the end. Imagine someone's stove catches on fire. They glance over at the fire extinguisher, but they don't grab it. They just slowly turn back and with a smile beginning to turn in the corners of their mouth, they whisper to themselves, God will work it out in the end. This reminds me of an old story I first heard on the West Wing. There was a man that lived by a river. He heard a radio report that the river was going to rush up and flood the town and that all the residents should evacuate their homes. But the man said, I'm religious. I pray. God loves me. God will save me. And the waters rose up. A guy in a rowboat came along and he shouted, Hey! Hey you! You in there! The town is flooding! Let me take you to safety. But the man shouted back, I'm religious, I pray. God loves me. God will save me. A helicopter was hovering overhead and a guy with a megaphone shouted, Hey you down there! The town is flooding. Let me drop this ladder and I'll take you to safety. But the man shouted back that he was religious, that he prayed that God loved him, and that God would take him to safety. Well, the man drowned. And standing at the gates of St. Peter, he demanded an audience with God. Lord, he said, I'm a religious man. I pray. I thought you loved me. Why did this happen? God said, I sent you a radio report, a helicopter, and a guy in a rowboat. What the hell are you doing here? God will not work it out in the end. God's trajectory, as we have seen in Scripture, is working toward the reconciliation of creation now. And the people of God are invited to work on it now also, not to sit idly by, and certainly not to work against it. As you can tell, I just continue to grow more and more passionate about this topic. But it's not because I think I'm right. It's actually because the more and more I experience of creation care, the more it feels freeing, restful, and just right. I'm not only talking about critical concerns for the whole world. I am talking about critical concerns for you and for me. We have been convinced that we are consumers. We are more than that. I'm not sure there's much else to say. There's really only one subject left. What do we do now? Obviously, I could list a ton of action steps, and I'm always happy to add to this list, but I think I've developed a good list of about six general values and starting steps if you're interested in engaging in creation care. Number one, stop. I would just bring you back to everything we talked about last week. Just stop. Our consumeristic selves need to be put to death before we can do much more. Number two, get outside as often as possible. Go out where there's nothing to buy. Go out where things are not made by humans. Go out and experience natural systems and rhythms. Breathe and rest. You will learn more than I could ever share. You will feel more than I could ever manipulate. Number three, grow something. Quite frankly, I don't think the scale matters all that much. Start with growing one thing. When you do, you will be a part of the natural rhythms of creation. You will be forced to observe the process. You will have your hands returned to the soil from which they were born. You will be forced to wait for success. You cannot buy your way out and you cannot rush the process. You don't have to know much. Just try it. Observe and adjust. Number four, recycle, reduce, and reuse. But I think there's one problem with the image associated with this process, and that is that it is a circle, which gives the impression that all three actions are equally as helpful. In reality, the proper order has always been reduce, reuse, then recycle. Let me first say a couple problematic things about recycling. Most people aren't aware of this, but the current state of recycling in the United States is almost nothing. In short, recycling has existed because the United States traditionally has sold our used materials in bulk to other countries, mainly China. A couple of years ago, having nothing to do with the current tariffs, by the way, but a couple of years ago, other countries pretty much stopped buying. The biggest reason was that they obviously want pure bulk bundles of whatever, say a a, a large pure bulk bundle of plastic, for example. They would grade the purity of each bundle and ours were getting worse and worse. So in short, for example, we may have been selling a bundle of plastic, but it was actually only like 65% plastic. It just became better for them to stop buying. Generally speaking, it's great that Americans try to be mindful enough to recycle. But we're really bad at it. We don't sort. We don't separate lids from the bodies of things. We don't wash out containers. So then, what do they do with their rejected bulk load of recycling? They throw it in a landfill. So, we really need to get more mindful about how we recycle. Another thing worth mentioning about recycling is, as a rule, plastic is the absolute worst. Even if it's recycled, it's the least efficient recycling process. It takes forever to break down. It's just the worst. If at all possible, go with any other option besides plastic. We also need to look at other options before recycling. Absolutely, the first step is reduce. Think about whether you actually need something before you buy it. The bottom line is that we don't need all the stuff we have. If there's something that you do feel you need, does it have to be new? Try reusing something. Tip number five, compost. Perhaps out of anything I've done, as I've tried to bring more balance to my life, composting has been one of the most informative and easiest composting reminds me that the earth has an incredible system in place to heal itself if we just get out of the way of course you can dig really deep into composting but to start i like to just tell people you just need the right balance of carbon and nitrogen for carbon think browns and for nitrogen think greens You'll probably have a higher supply of browns than greens, so when you need a nitrogen boost, just save all your grass clippings and throw them in the compost pile. Stir the pile on a regular basis, and after a period of time, you will have supercharged soil to use to grow stuff in. If you have room in your yard, I highly suggest you do it on your own so you can observe the process. If your neighbors will get mad at you, there are a number of templates for building your own composter on the internet. If you can't do it on your own, I've seen several companies who have started composting in many different areas. Just look it up on the internet. Once you start composting, you can throw almost all your food waste in there and watch it disappear over time. Almost everything besides meat. And if you do a hot compost, you can actually even do meat, but you should look that up before you try it. Listen, if you reduce Reuse, recycle, and compost. You will be amazed how much your landfill contribution decreases. Tip number six, learn. I actually can't tell you the most urgent needs in your community. I often choose reducing carbon and reducing waste because they're issues that unite all of us no matter where you are. But there's probably some really urgent need in your community related to creation care that I know nothing about. So my last tip is learn about your local community. I might suggest you start by learning about your specific watershed. Where does your water come from and what's going on with it? This point is where I think faith communities can be most effective on this issue. If your faith community doesn't have something like creation care as one of its justice ministries, perhaps you have a conversation you need to have about an area you can take some leadership in. Another area you can really learn about is having a handle on your own consumption habits. In our society, it just gets easier and easier to have no idea. Many of us live with a near unlimited supply of whatever resource we want. So don't start with cutting your electrical usage or any other of those things. Start with knowing how much you're using. Then you can make your own decisions about what's responsible. Finally, learn about where your food comes from. Learn what's in it. Learn where it's grown. As I mentioned in a previous episode, one of the most staggering things about our agricultural system is that 48% of U.S. agriculture happens in California, which is a desert. This means water has to come from somewhere else to make the crops grow. It also means that a ton of food has to be shipped a far distance to make it to you. Do you really need mangoes in January that bad? But that is what I've been talking about. For first world nations, the best first step in creation care is understanding that just because something is available, that doesn't mean we need it. But it's also worth mentioning, I generally believe people are good, or at least very able to access the good inside themselves. So I don't generally think you're all out there laying in bed eating strawberries in January chuckling at your fortune. Most people I talked to just didn't know the true cost of their choices. That's why the sixth tip is to learn. I hope that small list is a good start. And it's full of very practical first steps. Start with just one. Then add another. Every adjustment makes a difference. But with that being said, there's another side to the you-can-make-a-difference coin. I must admit, your actions are a drop in the ocean compared to the actions of some giant companies. When it comes to climate change, air quality, water quality, soil, and many other things, your small choices will not make a huge dent in the problem. I just want to be honest about that. But now, hear the gospel— The good news, we can make a difference. Our choices together can make a large impact. And the possibility that you on your own won't make much difference can't be the barrier from us making a difference. If we all commit to doing it together, no matter what level you jump on at, if we all do it together, we can make a difference. That brings us to the end of this episode and to the end of this series. Thank you all for listening. Thank you once again for enduring my long break. There's no chance we're done with this topic, though. It will always be sprinkled throughout postmodern liturgy. I want to take a second and announce two initiatives that I'm going to start on postmodern liturgy this week that are connected to the series that we are ending. The first is something I'm starting called Eco Revivals. Traditionally, revivals have been based around the idea of pushing people toward a sort of rebirth as a new creation. So I thought, why don't we have some gatherings based around pushing people towards the new earth? More specifically, if you would like your faith community to dig deeper into these issues, but you don't know where to start, I would be happy to come to your area and hold a three session conference, which will end up being a lot like this series has been. We can discuss the best format whether that be multiple evenings or just a Saturday, where we have three sessions, a theology of creation care, practice of creation care, and Lectio Tierra somewhere in your community. Of course, I love music, so each session will be set up as an experiential teaching. The second initiative is my annual creation care trip to the Pacific Northwest in the United States. I have done this trip the last two years, but this will be the first year I'm doing it through this website. The values of this trip are disconnection, developing a sense of wonder, and creation care. You can find out a ton more information on the website, but because many of you might be coming from different areas this year, I need to restructure things just a bit, and that starts with you signing up on the website to let me know your general interest. This week, you'll be able to get on the site and fill out a short google doc to express your interest and to let me know some details that will be really helpful in me planning the trip in a different way this year you can also see all the wonderful things we have done over the past couple years the trip will take place in late may 2020 i'd love it if you would join me you can find out about both these initiatives on postmodernliturgy.com slash experiences-1 or just click the Experiences tab from the homepage at postmodernliturgy.com As always, you can connect with us on social media at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. If you appreciate our work, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy. And there you can see all the benefits that our supporters get on a regular basis. There won't be an episode next week because I'm going to be finishing my job at Short North Church this week, and I'm going to take some time to prepare for the Advent season. The podcast will be back on November 18th to do one Sunday before Advent starts and will continue through the Advent season. Thanks for joining me, and as always... Enjoy the tension.